0: In the high desert in the great american southwest i'm art bell slamming india radio like a supercharged nanoparticle of unopinion. my name is george Napp. i'm richard serrett this is ghani willis i'm george nori welcome to coast to coast am it's great to be here Welcome to Coast to Coast PM, the number one unofficial Coast to Coast AM podcast. We are two brothers who analyze the world's largest overnight paranormal radio show known as Coast to Coast AM. My name is Paul, and I'm the guy that listens to this inexplicable radio show, and I am here to let you know that we have a bit of a different episode for you today. So if you're new to the show, first off, what have you been doing? You've been totally missing out, so go back and listen to all of our episodes. But instead of breaking down a Coast to Coast AM episode as we usually do, Chris and I will be interviewing Jeffrey Shanks, an actual real-life archaeologist who's here to help us unpack the history of the Sphinx, as well as alternative archaeology in relation to ancient Egypt, especially in regards to what is hiding beneath the sphinx we're going to find out today it's a super interesting conversation so both chris and i hope that you enjoy it this is also our first interview in something like 47 episodes so if you like this kind of content please send your thoughts to c2cpmpod at gmail.com that is in the show notes and you can also support us on patreon link in the show notes as well Uh, Last note, I am getting over a bat with COVID, so if I sound like uh, crap today, I do apologize for that. Please bear with me for sure. Uh, But without further ado, we will get to the episode. Hope you enjoy it.
1: Hey, Coasternauts! We have a super special episode with you here today. We are with Jeffrey Shanks, who has been a professional archaeologist for over two decades. He's also a popular cultural historian specializes in archaeological themes and speculative fiction from an early age he has had an avid interest in the paranormal ufos cryptozoology and lost civilizations so we figured he would be the perfect person to come and talk to us about this amazing series he's been doing on reddit about the esoteric knowledge of the sphinx and where it all comes from dude i've been absolutely riveted by this jeff and so uh we got to start with the number one question that Coast always starts with. How'd you get into this? <laughs> well, first of all, let me thank both of you guys for
2: having me on. Um, you know, I really enjoy your show. And so it's great to be a part of it. Sure. Let me start out. I, you know, I, um, I I should say, you know, first of all, that, you know, I'm, I'm appearing on the show um not as a representative of of my agency uh, that i work for but as an individual so i gotta throw that disclaimer out there always um but yeah i i started from an early age um when i was a kid probably growing up you know watching in search of with leonard nimoy religiously and i'm pretty sure that kind of warped my brain <laughs> um, you know, so i've always had an interest in um You know, sort of alternative, you know, views of uh, you know history and the paranormal. I mean, when you're growing up as a kid in the '70s, like that, and and early '80s, Bigfoot was everywhere, Loch Ness monster, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And um, you know, it it was just a popular time for those kinds of um, those kinds of ideas. And you know, obviously, as I got older, I you know became a little bit more skeptical. But you know, going into the 90s, you know, that was sort of another period where these kind of themes came back, right? Um, X-Files was huge. And, um, you know, you had, a, you know, a Graham Hancock, um, you know, coming out with his books in the early 90s that were, you know, a big sensation, you know, kind of you know, revisiting some of the stuff from the seventies, right? You had chariots of the gods in the you know late sixties, early seventies. You know, Hancock comes out with fingerprints of the gods in the nineties, you know, really kind of just playing off of that same idea. And it started a, um, you know, kind of a, um, re reinvigorating some of those old ideas right you know with a with a new right. uh, veneer in the 90s and then you also had at the same time in the mid 90s the internet right at the beginning of the internet where all of these ideas right niche, niche ideas right could find um, their spaces right online um and you know it was just a really interesting period i was um you know at the time i had actually um, was out of um, i'd left college and was working um, and I'm just starting to get back into these, um, you know, listening to the, reading these books, looking at stuff online, maybe even occasionally listening to Coast to Coast with Art Bell, right? Oh, yeah. um, And I got so interested and so intrigued going down the rabbit hole of, of some of these alternative history ideas that I decided to put my money where my mouth was. And I went back to school to become an archaeologist. You know, so it, it's, it's kind of ironic now because, I, you know, I, I am kind of critical of like Graham Hancock and some of these ideas, but... Quite literally, I owe my career you know, to that interest that you know, his works you know, generated in me the, in, the, in the early 90s. Um, but I did, I went back to school, became an archeologist. Uh, today, I work for a federal agency, I manage a regional archeological program. Um, but wow. I've always still had an avid interest in, in these themes, even as I became more skeptical over time. You know, it, it's, it's easy to speculate about alternative history ideas when you're just watching videos on YouTube. It's a lot different when you're actually out there digging holes in the ground and sweating and breaking your back and with the bugs and the heat and the, you know, um, real archaeology, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a different thing. And I know a lot of my colleagues have very little patience for some of, some right. of these ideas, you know, and, and, I, under, and I get it, right? But, um, but I also understand, too, that there is, you know, the interest in these sort of alternative ideas um, you know, of history and ancient civilizations, what it shows is just how much of a of an interest and a curiosity people have about the ancient world, right? Um, and right. I think that maybe sometimes we, as archaeologists and historians, you know, as professionals, don't do a great job of getting that information to the public and telling the stories in a way that are compelling, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, and and that we need to do a better job, right? It, it, it's our fault as much as you know, it, it is, um, you know, people being gullible or whatever. Right. I mean, um, right. So, so I, I'm kind of, you know, on both sides of the fence there and I, and you know, cause I can, I understand both sides, I guess.
1: Um, right. Right. No, absolutely. That's, and, and that's such Jeffrey. I just love that you said that it really is the fault of the experts because that is a big humbug for me that right. I, I, I see these, these people who, you know, they stand from their ivory towers almost looking down on the general populace being like, well, you're too stupid to understand what's really happening. Look at your silly belief systems and your silly, you know, mythologies and things like that. And it's like it, it, there's an antagonism that comes from so many experts I feel like and I think we've I I mean at least in the last decade we've really seen that that antagonism has has turned into this weird conspiratorial mindset that you know people are 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 believing some of the strangest things and for me it's it's made conspiracy and and paranormal and stuff like that you know, I I always argue for the conspiracist, mm-hmm. right? Because that your idea right there. I think you just you put it so succinctly,
0: and so I just I really appreciate you saying that. You know, something I think is interesting too, what you said about communication. You know, when it comes to communicating from that higher education level too, I think that so often yes. folks that you know are working in really complex fields, have a hard time speaking to normies about it, which right. is a big part of why like, what is the, the one like astrophysicist that everyone knows? It's Neil deGrasse Neil Tyson. Neil deGrasse Tyson, right. right. Neil deGrasse Tyson is a great communicator. He also hasn't published a paper in like decades. I think it's been like three decades since he's actually right. published a paper. Right. But everyone knows it because he's a really great communicator because communicating is a skill, right? It's hard to do. It's hard to take this like really complex idea and distill it down for the normies and for the public. Um, So I think that is something that I don't necessarily know if I blame experts for because it is hard, like when you're just in it so often, but it is something that we have to get better at um, in in terms of being able to actually communicate with folks and getting them to understand and teaching it at a collegiate level to know like, hey, when you are getting your master's or your PhD program, you need to be able to communicate this stuff to other people. So like, here's how you do it. I think that's probably where part of the failure is.
1: Well, and and talking about Graham, right? I mean, I love history. And so reading historical, you know, tomes is something I enjoy doing. But when I read Fingerprints of the Gods, when I read, you know, some of the other works of Graham, it's so much more fascinating, right? It's like, well, I don't know. Are humans, were humans using their mind to cut out, you know, giant granite blocks? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Well, yeah, I
2: mean, he's he's a great writer. I mean, it was right. the same for me. I, I read fingerprints when it came out in 95. And, you know, not only was, you know, I was so enthralled by it that I instantly went and started buying, you know, going through his bibliography and buying his sources and reading those, you know, where was, you know, like Charles Hapgood, you know, and, um, you know, some of the other you know, folks that he was he was borrowing stuff from and getting his ideas from. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I went deep down those rabbit holes. And I was, it was fascinating, and that's when I it engendered in me this, um, you know, I had sort of a latent interest, I guess, in ancient history and stuff. But going down that rabbit hole is what made me realize, hey, you know, I could theoretically do this for a living, right? Right. You know, and so I, I'm a almost a living testament to how even alternative archaeology, pseudo archaeology, which I don't like to use that term, a lot of my colleagues do, I don't because it's instantly pejorative. It's become that right. way, and that that shuts down conversation. Yes. Um, you know, but, um, you know, the, it it can it can have its place. Right. I think that and, and Paul, this kind of goes to uh, something you were sort of touching on, though, the way things have gotten lately. Or maybe, Chris, maybe it was you that mentioned it, though, is that the you know conspiratorial thinking now it's it's almost it is almost getting a little bit more problematic. It's not all fun and games like it was right. you know, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, because now this the and this is what you see a lot of archaeologists reacting to graham here and saying things like oh this program's dangerous you know which actually just gives him great ad copy right what they're but what they're getting at is that the the it it contributes to this larger anti-science um you know sort of vibe that's out there right now right that contributes to things like you know anti-vaccines and stuff like this you know and and right you know climate change denial and things like that that actually really can affect us today um right. and that's problematic this whole yeah. distrust of science um and the scientific method uh to the point where it's not even distrust anymore it's you know I mean, you'll you see it on reddit you know where you know which is a space i've been operating in lately i mean it, it's it's not even distrust it's almost anger and hate you know towards, outright
1: antagonism sometimes outright right?
2: antagonism right yeah. towards towards science um and that's, that's problematic. Um, yeah. so how do we back up from that? Right. How do we, right. you know, as you're saying, Paul, how do we, um, as professionals, as people that are in scientific fields do a better job of, um, communicating and not coming across as, you know, the arrogant condescending, you know, ivory tower folks. Right. Because, because I don't think that's intentional, but people do it. Right. right. I mean, and you, you see that all the time. Um, this was, I was just at the, um, the society for American archeology span conference, the SAA conference this past yes. weekend. Um, and your listeners, if, if you're, you know, follow Hancock and some of these things, you might recognize SAA as the uh, organization that wrote that letter to Netflix saying that, you know, his program should be considered nonfiction and, and all of right. that. And so there was a, a panel discussion, a, a, you know, heavily attended. Um, and well, I wasn't on the panel, but I did speak, um, you know, as part of it. And, uh, you know, I know a lot of the the guys that are on there and this was a large part of the the conversation. Like, what are, you know, what are we doing wrong? How do we respond to this? Um, Personally, I felt like that letter was, um, it was a poor choice in in how they responded for a number of reasons. You know Um, I actually, you know, and I I know that the people that helped them write it Um, I should say this too, that uh, SAA is a huge organization, right? This is a professional organization with thousands of people you know, thousands of archaeologists that are members, you know, um, and, you know, it was a small, you know, steering group that did that, basically. Right, you know, uh, Without right. really a whole lot of input from, you know, but, uh, and they reached out to some of the main debunking archaeologists that are out there to help write that letter.
0: Right. Um,
2: and so, I guess, while I agree with the, the sort of overall sentiment, the way that letter was worded was exactly the kind of language that, Paul, you were talking about. You know, rather than trying to have a dialogue, it came across as school marmish, right? right. Like you know, scolding, even, right? And that's yep. that's not how you win people over, no. You know, um, you know well, and it
1: has a it has a Streisand effect, right? And that's right. the you know when you when you mention something that nobody, you know, not that nobody was going to watch the Graham Hancock series right. on Netflix. I mean, that that's just yeah. impossible. But it probably drove more and more people to watch it that probably wouldn't have even looked at it because they're like, yes. Oh wow. People are really angry about this. Let me watch and see what? what they're doing. And then they watch it. Right. And they're like, well, I don't really see what the big deal is. Right. Well, and
2: you, you know, literally like you'll see now his ads now for the show, it's you know, the most dangerous show on Netflix, right? right? He's right. literally taking language from this, from the, the SAA letter. Right. Like, yeah. The just don't want you to see, you know, which, yeah, absolutely. Just, you know, you they walked right into his trap, right? Yeah. <laughs> they really did, right. you know? Um, you know, it's, we, we've got to do a better job of, you know, for example, the um, you know, Flint Dibble's going to go on there and, and debate him, you know, on, on Rogan, you know, here mm-hmm. in a few months. Some people have heard that. Yeah, again, it's like, why debate? Why not have a dialogue, right? right. What, is, what do debates prove, right? Which yeah. one of you is more charismatic? Which yeah, one of right. you is better at rhetoric, rhetoric and sophistry, you know, yeah. I mean, that's not, what, what good does that do, honestly? we should be trying to have more dialogue right yes Um, that's kind of what i've been trying to do with the sphinx series on reddit um i don't know how successful i've been at that but i've tried to keep it more objective you know and um you know like here's here's sort of the history of this idea right the weird shit the not the the archaeology all of it together this these are where these ideas come from right um giving some context right to people to see you know you know here's this really interesting idea that maybe there's chambers under the sphinx or a hall of records right and you'll you see things out there on youtube with you know, people throwing up images and drawings of chambers with no context whatsoever right what i was starting to realize is that a lot of people now don't even know the alternative history version right of where these things come from much right. less the, the mainstream archaeology version yes of, of this right um So that's kind of what I was trying to do with this Sphinx series. See if I can, you know, um, bridge that gap, right? Not be, um, try to be objective, not be judgmental about alternative ideas. Let's just throw them out there and see where they come from. Here's what everything is. You guys can look into this and explore it and, you know, make up your own minds, what you think about these things. Um, So I don't know, this is kind of the approach I'm trying to take as as someone who, is a professional archaeologist, but I also do a lot of public archaeology, trying to think about how do we interpret these ideas for the public uh, in a way that doesn't come across like you know like a condescending asshole, you know. And Jeffrey, <laughs> that
1: was that. I mean, quite honestly, that was what drew me to these these articles that you've <laughs> been writing because. Well, I mean, it really is a fascinating history. And to see how early it starts, I think you start in like the 1910s. Yeah, (laughs) right. In your your episode. But I mean, I was, you know, as I was reading that, I was thinking it has to be older than that, right? It It absolutely is. Yeah, You have Napoleon, you know, looking at the Sphinx and even before that, right? It goes all the way back to ancient times. Right. I mean,
2: Herodotus talks about, um, you know an underground tomb of khufu you know uh, that's buried that's under the sink somewhere um you know there's um you know hermetic texts you know in the right some of which may go back to the fourth century um the the real em- emerald tablet text not the fake one that's out there that's a whole other story i could have been an episode <laughs> on that um that talk about you know um you know thoth or hermes uh, Megistos, uh, burying records under the pyramids under the sphinx you know right uh, with arabic um yes that talk about you know different things so this idea that there's there are subterranean chambers in the giza plateau goes back to antiquity um you know i started with the more modern version because Otherwise this would be like a 50 part series. It's already dragging out.
1: <laughs> and We will, we, we will link to all those in the show notes, everyone. So, <laughs> so make sure you, you check cool. them out because I have been riveted by it, but let's, let's get into. So you kind of mentioned a little bit about why this Sphinx, but maybe go into a little bit more. What, what was it that, that you, cause I, forgive me, but you Mm -hmm. haven't really done anything like this before on Reddit, right? This is really your first deep dive series. Yeah, I
2: did a few things like about a year ago when the whole UAP thing was getting big on some of the early history of the UFO or flying saucer as a phenomenon in the late- We're going to have to check that out, Paul. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I, you know, because again, people were people don't even know the the history of the alternative stuff right you know and so i you know i went back and did a um you know kind of a breakdown of the first few years of the of the you know ufo phenomenon flying saucer phenomenon they called it back then right right um, and how the government was responding to it and um you know the, the twining memo and all of those kinds of things and putting all of that again in historical context right because again that's it's a fascinating story but yeah, people don't really you know don't really remember anymore when i saw people posting on here that they um somebody posted the thing hey here's this thing from this guy kenneth arnold who saw discs back in 47 i'm like you've never heard of kenneth arnold that's literally how the whole ufo thing started <laughs> you know so okay it's uh, all right i'm gonna have to start you know frantically typing on Reddit and do long-winded posts to try and give people some historical context on this stuff. Because right. like you said, that's, it's fascinating too. The history just of this alternative, or any of these alternative ideas are, are fascinating.
1: You know, I think, I think it's incredible, but where I really want to start with the Sphinx stuff is Edgar sure. Cayce. Okay. Because we, I think we've only mentioned Edgar a couple of times, but I, I, I'm hoping you can kind of one give us a little bit of an overview of who Edgar Casey is, sure. and then how does he get involved with the Sphinx? Great question, right? And um, Edgar Casey's uh,
2: his psychic readings, for lack of a better term, um, about the Sphinx have been hugely, hugely influential. Probably more than any other uh, source. On right. these ideas of there being a hall of records or there being chambers on the sphinx at least in modern times right so uh he was um uh, he was born in i believe it was kentucky in the south in, in the late 1800s uh he lived in alabama for a while his family moved around and um he was even from an early age um you know there were stories about him you know like as a kid like talking to little people in the barn and, you know, um, talking to his dead grandfather and stuff. Even as a kid, there was these sort of um, stories about him, even in in the late 1800s. And um, he ended up having an injury where he lost his voice and um, couldn't speak for whatever reason. And uh, he was being treated uh, by doctors and all, and they, they couldn't figure it out. Um, but finally, he ended up uh, going into a, a trance that um, there was a doctor that realized it was a um, more of a psychological thing that was going on with him. And he hypnotized him and went, him in, went into a trance and he was able to get his voice back. Um, but what he started realizing when he went into this trance is he started channeling some sort of entity, right, that was, um, you know, telling him stuff and all of and, uh, and so he started doing this more often. Um, and so throughout the early 20th century, he became more and more famous. He would go into these trances and he would start doing readings of people, especially people that had you know, various medical ailments. And this channeled source would um, come through him and he would describe you know, kind of weird oddball cures for people's medical ailments. You know, Sometimes they were, they were holistic you know, techniques and things like this. Um, and they were, by all accounts, it was often very successful you know now obviously this could be placebo effect right Right. um you know but you know he got a reputation for you know being able to cure people whenever he would go into a trance and channel these entities um as he started doing this more and more though this uh source as he called it started to give people's descriptions of people's past lives and that started coming out more and he himself was um you know he was a devout christian you know um you know, from the South where, you know, it's very, you had you know, to fundamental, be. fundamentalist, right?
1: You know, yeah. you, had um, to be.
2: you had to be right. And, um, you know, he started, uh, he himself was very skeptical of this and had issues, you know, was you know kind of conflicted with it. Um, but I, I say that, and that's often the kind of the line, but when you go back and look at, um, you know, I've done a lot of research, pulling up newspaper articles from the early where he start first starts appearing, um, it is kind of clear he was speaking to theosophical groups and stuff mm-hmm. in the early mm-hmm. 1900s. He was very much, I think, start, got connected with um, what was called the new thought movement. And what that was, was sort of early esoteric Christianity. It's kind of okay. like what we would call like new age Christianity today. Right. Um, and so, and a large part of that was, um, was healing and stuff and using, you know, and like Christian science, was kind of an offshoot of that the idea that oh you don't need medicine you can just you know pray your cancer away whatever right right right. which is problematic but yeah so he was kind of connected with that and he was um you know getting uh into you know a lot of the people that he was reading were people that were theosophists or that were into some of these ideas you know um so even in the south there was this kind of proto new age you know movement you know going on um Although There always have.
1: has been. There always, always has, has been. been. You okay. know, there there were were a backwoods people in the South, and yeah, so okay, <laughs> yeah. okay. No, I'm, but that's I'm I'm saying it's that true. as yeah, I'm saying that as I'm a, a city boy. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> and that existed, right? That the, the cities it. have always existed in the South, but they've always been smaller, right. and it didn't take you too long to get into the rural backwoods mm-hmm. where right. where. Technology didn't come into play, you know, people didn't come visit, and it's been this, it's been a tension in the South for three, four, five centuries. Yes, and you have, like, the folk
2: remedies, and you have all these kinds of things that are a part of that, right, and that's that's a lot of what, you know, Casey was coming out of that tradition, but he ended up becoming famous. Um, and um, I've been, you know, looking at some of the early, trying to see when that happens. It's really like in the twenties, he started to become really well-known, right? Just from looking at old newspaper accounts and stuff. He ended up, um, you know, he and sort of group of, you know, kind of followers, I, it's probably not the right term, you know, because he was never, he wasn't like one of these new age cult leaders, like a lot right. of people take, right, he was never really making any money off of it or anything like that. I, he's somebody that I, I don't feel like he was a con artist, like a right. lot of them are, I, I, I feel like he was at least legitimate in his, uh, he was earnest in his beliefs.
1: I yes, think, right. right. Um, Jason, the horse.
2: <laughs> like, <she's> exactly <laughs> like exactly like the worst. yeah right right uh, a little less equine but yes yes um, and he you know ended up starting a, um, a a group in Virginia Beach he ended up going there and um, they found sort of a hospital Good place a to start
1: of a, a function you know? dude yeah Virginia
0: Beach let's go it, it
2: was his source that told him to go there yeah I don't know, for whatever reason <laughs>
0: did, he, did he ever say what this source was was it did he think it was angelic or it was like a spirit being? So it seems he never, never got a name. Right.
2: And, but you get the impression that it may have even been like his, one of his past life incarnations or something. It's not well, you know, it's not well identified or articulated, right. Even, even by Casey himself, he never really understood it and his source. And I usually use a capital S for that. You know, there, there's a lot of um, speculation over where he, where he was getting this from. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, he started, especially beginning a little bit in the 20s, some of those past life readings he was getting from people. He started getting past lives of people that were in Atlantis, not just in ancient times or whatever, but he was getting Atlantean past lives, right? And right. this <laughs> started, you know. So, and especially for him, he was like, he was, it kind of didn't know to, whether or not to believe it himself, right? He, right. He really didn't, you know, necessarily buy into this. But uh, in the early 30s, people started. Some of some of the uh, people around him were really interested. Like, hey, let's let's do more with this Atlantis stuff. Let's just like specifically, we're gonna, once you go into your trance, we're just going to question you about this Atlantis stuff because that's some fucking weird shit. And right. We're interested in it, right? Right. Uh, and so they did. And they have a, they had a stenographer. You know, he had a secretary that would basically use shorthand, and she would you know type everything up. Right. So we'd have all of his readings, you know, transcribed. And so in the early 30s, that's where. They really started specifically questioning him about Atlantis and um, ancient Egypt, you know, and, and you, you get um, you know, some of the kind of standard stuff, right, that uh, the Atlanteans after the destruction, you know, came to Egypt and founded Egypt. And, you know, one of the things that he said, he, he himself supposedly had a past life as a as a priest. Um, you know, in Egypt, you know, in that early, you know, helping build the pyramids ten thousand years ago, right. ten thousand five hundred years ago is the right. date that he gave, and that's that's kind of significant. We we could come back to that because that's where you know Graham Hancock and yep. a lot of people specifically try to tie things to this type, you know, ten thousand five hundred BC date that that Casey used. But one of the things he he did say was that there was a um, hall of records that was constructed. um you know, there in Egypt, buried, and the Sphinx was built on top of it, right, as sort of a guardian, okay. and that Hall of Records would contain information about Atlantis, and, um, you know, things like that, and that it was connected to the pyramids, um, and the pyramids weren't tombs, they were temples of initiation, um, so that's where this sort of, you know, it was sort of popularized, Um later, really more after his death, right? He did all these readings in the thirties, but a lot of his Atlantis stuff really didn't get out there uh, in public consciousness until later. He was mostly just known as, you know, the healing guy, the sleeping prophet that healed people. You know, right. During his lifetime. Um, he died in 1945. And uh, it was really after that. And especially in the sixties where, you know, his son started publishing the Atlantis stuff. And, you know, that was a time you know, in the 60s where, you know, you had counterculture and people were interested in yeah. these ideas and you, you started starting to get sort of proto new agey ideas. And right. that's really when Casey started becoming popular. You know, it was really in the late 60s. You know, that was the time, you know, you had Carlos Castaneda and you had, you know, all of this at that time. And um, going into the end the 70s and 80s, the organization he started, um, A.R.E., the Association for Research and Enlightenment, became hugely popular. Um, it was kind of at its peak probably in the 80s. And, um, you know, it, what what starts happening, and I, I go into this in my in my series, is that beginning in the 70s and 80s, you know, ARE, as it became more popular, they had lots of members, they had a lot of wealthy members, they, they had a lot of money, they started investing in actual archaeological projects in Egypt to try and confirm whether or not Casey's readings were legitimate. Um they were, you know, looking for um, the Hall of Records in the seventies, eighties, you know, and uh, and even into the nineties. Um, well, I, January, assume they,
0: I assume they, I they found the Hall of Records, right? They proved them correct.
2: Um, they <laughs> well. <laughs> this is where like with all like the bigfoot shows and the ancient alien shows they always leave it at the end um, right so that you'll tune in the next episode well it's inconclusive right? <laughs> yeah it's it's the hunt <laughs> so for the giant squid well,
0: well we didn't quite find him this time we didn't but... quite find it <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> right um and and it and that's kind of what it is so i mean they use a lot of geophysical techniques um mm-hmm. which is a fancy term that we archaeologists we use for Um, non-destructive techniques for looking in the ground ground penetrating radar seismology electrical resistivity where we fire electrical currents through the ground and and measure it and what they found is there are a lot of cavities and voids um, all around the sphinx but the problem is this is a limestone you know plateau and limestone this is something you know I'm in Florida. This is where, you know, I'm, so I'm, I'm very familiar with limestone geology here and it creates these natural cavities. I mean, it's, yep. you know, limestone bedrock is like Swiss cheese. Yes. You know, it, it's not solid. You, you get void. That's why here in Florida we have sinkholes all the time. Right. You know, where the limestone starts collapsing, you know, and then you're all of a sudden your house is in the ground. Um, this, the Giza plateau is the same way. Okay. And, So the problem is, yeah, if you go out there with something like GPR you know, or these geophys techniques and you just pick any random spot on the Giza Plateau and start running your techniques, yeah, you're going to find cavities. You're going to find voids. So that's what they did. They went to the Sphinx. They did the GPR all around it. And yeah, they found cavities. Here's the thing. If they went anywhere else out there too, they're going to find them all over the place. Right. And that's the problem, right? Um, And Jeffrey,
1: I actually really connected with that part of of your article because Mm -hmm. I was like, I grew, I I went to university of Arkansas in Northwest Arkansas, which is nothing but karst topography. Right. And I, I've seen, you know, just giant holes in the ground and crazy cavern systems and stuff like that. And I was like, all of that's completely natural, right? It's, it's, it's it's wonderful. (laughs) It's incredible. It's amazing to see, but nobody sat and chiseled that out. That's right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That said, something that I think hasn't really been taken into account much is that it's possible that some of these stories about um, chambers and things under the, under the pyramids, under the sinks, it could be both, right? right? We know that there are all these natural yes. caverns under there, right? They could have been being used by people, Yes. right? Even if they're natural, and that may have contributed to some of these legends and stories over the years, right? Yes. Um, so, you know, who knows? It could be a little bit of both. Um, right. right you
0: know. so, so, Jeff, I'm I'm curious because I, I don't know exactly how ground penetrating radar works. I have watched right. Hunt for Skinwalker Ranch, which is the most ridiculous <laughs> right. show you'll ever watch. Right. Where they do that a ton and constantly yeah. convince themselves there's a UFO buried in Skinwalker Ranch and there never is. Right. But my <laughs> assumption would be if there was, you know, a man-made cavern in like a hall of records that you would right. be able to see some pretty clear and distinct like walls and like straight line gaps that are branching off in hallways and corridors like I just I feel like if you were to use ground penetrating radar you'd be able to see that pretty clearly like would it be that obvious like how accurate is that stuff not
2: not necessarily especially in this kind of
0: topography because the other problem is the water
2: table
1: there that was what I thought was particularly interesting.
2: That's a, that's a real problem, and I and I've seen this actually just even here in Florida. I do I do do a lot of you know GPR work here, and um, again, and we have a similar problem where our water table is so high. You know, it, it works great for the few feet until you hit that that limestone bedrock and you hit the water table. But GPR will bounce off of the water as well, right? And so, yeah. depending on where the water level is, you know, especially if you have, let's say, you have a a sort of you know nodule in the ground that may be more or less regular looking as, as it um, you know as it kind of sticks up because remember it's going to be uneven right that that it's not going to be a nice flat limestone right you know, stratum right it's going to be all undulating and stuff right and it as it wicks water up because it's porous you know it really it will make you know some of those limestone nodules you know they might be more or less you know rectangular looking you know just because it's sticking up and that's where the the radar is hitting it it can look a lot more regular than it really is, you know, and that's, that's part of the problem. Um, you know, the, um, there was a team out there in the seventies that was doing GPR out there. Then when they first tried it, this was early, you know, when this technology was still starting and they basically gave up with the GPR because of the water table, because of the irregularities, you just can't tell anything from it. Um, Right. They had better success with other technologies like uh, resistivity, which is, basically firing a current electrical current through the ground and then measuring its speed mm. and so it'll travel faster you know in voids or things like that or, or where there's water you know because it's a conductor you know and they in the 70s they detected in this anomaly in front of the paws of the sphinx um right where edgar casey said it should be and everyone got all very excited about this um but it's it's not very it wasn't very regular um you asked about you know how how good is this how, how does it look you know a lot of people have the idea that their, their first experience with gpr in popular culture was jurassic park where there's the scene right. where they're running the gpr over the ground and there's a perfect t-rex skeleton yeah. it really <laughs> does not work like that in real
0: life dang that. it i was hoping it was <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's not how it works it, you get like we're weird kind of amorphous blobs and you have to really interpret the data um, you know, sometimes it can be nice and, re- and straight lines. Sometimes it's not. Um, there's a lot of interpretation to it. Uh, right. with a lot of these techniques. Um, Hollywood and, strikes
1: again. Yes, they
2: right. <laughs> and so they were getting these anomalies, but people were reading a little too much into it. Um, and one of the ones, this anomaly in front of the paws of the sinks, they did put a bore camera down. This is, you know, it's not fiber optics before that. This is, you know, late 70s, early 80s. And looked in it and it, it did appear to be just a natural fissure. It also wasn't as big as it looked in the resistivity signature. Right. That signature was making it look larger than it was. And it was full of dissolved limestone and rubble, you know. Um, then you in the 90s, there was, um, you know, some of you, would I didn't mention it, but there was the, the famous 1993 Mystery of the Sphinx special on NBC, hosted by Charlton right. Heston, right, which millions of people watched, including me. I was riveted, you know. Um, they talk about, you know, and there was another guy that went there and did seismology a guy named Thomas Dobecky and, you know, he was, um, picking up what was probably that same anomaly, you know, that had been picked up in the seventies, except now he was calling it a chamber and it was, you know, rectilinear and, you know, but yeah, he was, he was an Edgar Casey guy,
1: you know, right?
2: and it was really more of a case of wishful thinking. I think, um, they're, they're probably picking up natural cavities, and trying to make a little bit more out of it, you know, than it really is.
1: Well, and I, that was another really interesting part to me was AREs, you had people, you had people at ARE and very important parts of university systems, which was, which was kind of a, a shocking note for me, because when, you know, you think of, you know, board of trustees and stuff like that, you know, very like, Prim proper people, probably pretty wealthy, probably you know middle of the road types. But here you got a a devotee to Edgar Casey promoting a trip to to you know pretty much show that Edgar Casey was right in oh. tricking people. Yeah,
2: I mean, yes, I I, I mean, I guess. I don't know if it was intentionally tricking or if it right. was just wishful, I, you know, I, 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 I'd hate to characterize, you know, right. If it, if it was intentional. Because I, I, I feel like he, again, I think the Becky that did that was, I think he was in earnest. I think it's just wishful thinking, right? right. Um, they're really going there to try and confirm something. So they're going in there with this confirmation bias.
1: Right.
2: You know, they, they look in the one spot, like I said, where Edgar Casey said there was a cavity. But because again, because it's limestone, of course, there's going to be cavities there, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to find something for sure. And it was, it's confirmation bias probably more than anything. Right. Um, and, but your point about ARE is absolutely fascinating. I mean, they started even early on, Mark Lehner, who is uh, you know an Egyptologist, very well-known Egyptologist, one of the world's leading experts on the Giza Plateau, Um his whole career was, you know, funded essentially by ARE early on his academic career, rather. Um, and Incredible. His education. He was, you know, basically like you know this kid that was a protege of Hugh Lynn Casey, Edgar Casey's son, uh, you know, who was promoting his father's work. The idea was, hey, let's let's actually let's have our own Egyptologist. You know, we'll, we'll start with somebody that's young, who's got a lot of talent, and we'll back them, we'll send them to school, we'll pay for their education, and get them to the Giza Plateau, and let's find it. And that's exactly what Mark Lehner was. Um, he wrote a book in um, 1974, um, when he was still just a, a PhD student, um, called The Egyptian Heritage. And the whole book is him, you know, basically trying to justify Edgar Casey's readings about ancient Egypt and about the Sphinx. Um, you know, so it was almost like they had a plant. Right. Right. So, right, right. right in Egyptology. And, you know, he himself led, you know, he did a lot of work on the Sphinx. He was part of these 1970s projects. He mapped everything. He went in some of the the tunnels that are in. There are some legitimate tunnels in the Sphinx. They're all kind of small and makeshift. You know, um, he mapped it all out. That ended up being his dissertation um, was just, you know, mapping project for the Sphinx, uh, recording all the different uh, restoration, you know, attempts over the years. Right. But he was literally there and made no bones about it. I'm here to test, you know, the hypothesis that Edgar Cayce's readings might have been correct. And ultimately, he came to the conclusion that no, they're not, you know, like I said, it's one thing to speculate about all these things, but it's another, it's a different story to get out there and do real archaeology in the dirt, you know, working your ass off in that heat and seeing what's really there. Right. It, it, it's a, it's a very different experience and that happened to Mark and
1: ultimately he just became more and more of a skeptic. Um, Right. Right. Well, and that I was really curious to find out that Zawi Hawass was so involved in these early. Yeah. Because, (laughs) because he's an antagonist for the esoteric Egyptologists, right?
2: Yes and no. Okay. Yeah. He's an antagonist but he loves that new age money coming into the. Oh game yeah. There. So oh yeah. So he play, you know, he plays both sides, right. Right. Um, you know, at the same time, he's happy to take, you know, tons of money from ARE or from the Rosicrucians to come do their initiations in the great pyramid and stuff like that. You know, so he, on the one hand, he's yes, very much, you know, he's the one that really coined the term pyramid idiots, right? right. Making fun of people. <laughs> But yet he's, he still likes taking their money, you know, those tourist dollars, you know, and, and milking <laughs> things, you know. Um, right. But your point, yeah, that was – that's kind of a shock, right, that um, Hugh Lynn Casey, again, Edgar Casey's son, in his biography talks about how they helped get um, Zahi Hawass a scholarship uh, to the University of Pennsylvania. So while Mark Lehner has been very open – about his, his roots with the Casey organization and, you know, his, his own transformation, uh, Hawass has denied this vehemently. Right. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, essentially what, what and Casey said was that they knew somebody that was, they were on like the, uh, the Fulbright scholarship, you know, board of trustees that helped get, get him a scholarship. And Hawass denies that he's like, you know, yes, I got the scholarship, but it had nothing to do with
1: ARE. Right. Right. So
2: knows, right. So
1: on that, on that note, Jeffrey, maybe (laughs) it would be a good place for us to kind of talk about what is the, you know, if I go into an archeological class, I go into a history class and we start talking about the Sphinx, what, what, you know, who created the Sphinx in mainstream archeological historical thought? Why was it created? What was it supposed to do? Um, you know, kind of what, what? What do we know about the Sphinx that can actually be tied down? Okay, so the mainstream idea, right,
2: is that it was built during the reign of Khafre, um, who was a fourth dynasty pharaoh. Um, he is the person who built the the second largest pyramid, right? Um, he was the son of Khufu, who Khufu. built the Great Pyramid. Mm-hmm. Um, what we do know about the Sphinx is that um, this is supposed to be a representation of, um, of Horus in the horizon, or, or the pharaoh Khafre um, as Horus, um, re Horakti uh, in ancient Egyptian, because the Sphinx is actually looking, at, looking to the east, looking at the rising sun on the horizon. Um, we know that, archaeologically speaking, um, the Sphinx is connected to that second pyramid by a causeway um, that runs back to the pyramid, and it has two... Uh, Temples. It has a Sphinx temple right in front of it, and next to that, it has a mortuary temple for Khafre. So it is hard archaeologically to try and divorce the Sphinx from that context. But you know, there you know, there were some obviously some challenges to the idea that the Sphinx dates to the to the fourth dynasty and to and to Khafre. There are there's a a stele called the Inventory Stele, for example, that suggested it. It was um, that Khufu, Khafre's father, did renovations there, implying that it's even mm-hmm. older than Khafre's father. The problem is that Stele very clearly dates to a much later period, um, okay. the 26th Dynasty, and you can tell that from the language. But is it, you know, is it really a later, you know, a later work, or is it, you know, rec- a later work that's recording a legitimately ancient, you know, legend about the Sphinx? Right? Who knows. Um, the big question on the dating of the Sphinx came in the early nineties, uh, the challenge to the Orthodox view, you know, and that was uh, the work by uh, geologist, Robert shock. And, um, you know, maybe we could talk about that a little bit. Cause let let's go, trying, into, that. Let's go sure right on, into that. Let's yeah, go right into that. Yeah. I'm sure it's on everybody's idea. Right. Yeah. So that was the first real challenge, I think, you know, to, to this, I, you know, the idea that it was built by Khafre. Um, and again, this was popularized, um, you know, by the 1993, um, you know, live NBC special, and I wasn't live, but, you know, the big NBC documentary uh, that Charlton Heston hosted. And uh, so it, it really, the idea began actually with a French, um, a, uh, a French Egyptologist and kind of esotericist uh, named uh, uh, Schwaller de Lubitsch, um, who's not French really, Alsatian.
1: So half German, half French, right? Yeah, Depending there you on. go. Yeah, exactly. Actually, War, right? I you did know. a year. I did a year in Alsace. So uh, <laughs> I, I, they're my favorite people on the planet, dude. They really did mix German and right. French in such a beautiful <laughs> fashion that it's actually kind of insane.
2: Yeah. So so he came up with this. You know, He was one of the first people to sort of point out like, hey, this erosion on the Sphinx looks like it may have been done by water. Um, and he pointed this out in, in uh, the late 50s and uh, right before he died one of his works. And his his idea was that it was really, it was probably maybe Nile flood water was, you know, eroding the Sphinx. And, you know, um, and that was sort of his idea. A a guy that was a um, sort of a devotee of, of the Lubitsch, um, you know, came to his work after his death and who's an important figure in the alternative, alternative history takes on Egypt is a man named uh, John Anthony West. And um, John Anthony West was, took up, a lot of um, de Lubitsch's work and um, his work on uh, Egyptology as being, um, looking at it at, at there being a symbolic, um, you know, esoteric ideas incorporated into Egyptian art and architecture. That was a big part of it. But he picked up on this idea that, hey, this, the Sphinx may have water erosion. And West realized that if that's the case, if this is from water erosion, then the Sphinx must date back to a time when Egypt was wetter. And, you know, he published this in a book in the late 70s called Serpent in the Sky and, you know, tried to push this idea, but really didn't get any traction. But finally, in the late 80s, he was able to convince a geologist, Robert Schock uh, at Boston University, uh, you know, to at least come and take a look at the Sphinx, you know, and, and see what you think. And Schock was, you know, he's a legitimate academic archaeologist or geologist rather, um, traveled to Egypt with with West and looked and he's like, yeah, this is kind of, it, it's not, probably not flood water. His proposal was it was from precipitation, from rain. Mm. Right? And right. that's where they, they, you know, he sort of came up with the idea that, okay, maybe, maybe the Sphinx does predate, you know, the fourth dynasty, you know, you know dynastic Egypt. Uh, because the Sahara in that area was much wetter. Right. Um, you know, in a period a little bit before that, you know, um, 5000 B.C., 7000 B.C., it was right. wetter and it slowly 10,500
1: B.C., right? <laughs> well,
2: right. So shocks first, you know, shock was being very conservative and just pushing it back to, you know, to five, you know, 5000 B.C., something like that. Maybe the last time it was wet enough to create this kind of erosion. Right. Um, West, on the other hand, was, oh, no, no, it could be even older than that. It could be 10,000, you know years old again kind of going back to that Edgar Casey date um you know or Plato's date for Atlantis That
1: kind right of that right yeah um, all solon, dude he gave us the way
2: didn't he <laughs> <do> a whole <laughs> episode just on that um so this was sort of a, a challenge to the dating of the idea from a legitimate academic right with with Robert Schock and so it got people's attention it got my attention you know um it, this was really interesting and since then over the years there have been some challenges um to Shock's idea, obviously. Uh, one of the first was, you know, there, there was a guy that was already doing a lot of geological work on the Sphinx and his idea was that it would, the erosion, it's not from water, it's from salt exfoliation, which is a fancy term. Uh, it's basically um, the dew that collects in the limestone. Um, as it evaporates, it leaves salt crystals behind and that makes the, the you know, uh, the exterior flake off, right? And right. It, it can look like, you know, it can create that undulating kind of effect that looks like water. Right, Um, and then you add wind,
1: and the wind takes the salt crystals
2: away, right? Right. But, um, that's you know, there have been several studies since then. Um, if nothing else, what shot did was make people start really paying attention to this, and really, you know, you have a number of geologists now over the last god 30 years now. Holy cow, um, how'd that happen? Wait, um. (laughs) I'm old. <laughs> Over the last 30 years, there have been a lot of arguments and controversy and people looking at this. And what you start to see now is there seems to be a, a, a consensus that um, there are a lot of different processes going on here at the Sphinx um, that, are, that are creating um, you know, the, the erosion there. A combination of water erosion, you know, um, the salt, all of these things, but none of them by themselves are enough to explain the amount of erosion here. And one of the more interesting uh, ideas that's come out of this is that the, the water erosion there, and it's not just on the body of the Sphinx itself, we should be clear about this, the Sphinx is carved out of the limestone, right? And there's an enclosure around it. And there's a lot of uh, erosion on this enclosure wall as well. In fact, more than on the body of the Sphinx itself. One of the real interesting ideas now is that a lot of the erosion may be coming from runoff. Um, so even though, even while Egypt has been a desert, it's still subject to uh, occasional like powerful rainstorms. Right. And right. anybody that's, you know, in a desert environment, um, if I know when you, when you do get a rainstorm there, you know, because you're not used to having that rain, it can be, you can, it can create devastating flash floods.
1: Very quickly. You know? Very, very quickly. Very
2: quickly. You know, I did a, um, you know, one of the things uh, just for the agency I work for, I ended up doing a project at it um, in uh, Death Valley where they had had a major, you know, a major flood out there that did all kinds of damage and destroyed a bunch of stuff. And I had to go out there and record some of the damage and things like that. And as I'm talking to him, I mean, like it wiped out this old historic home and all of this. And I was talking to one of the local you know, rangers there and he's like, oh yeah, it was, this was like a thousand year flood. We got two inches of rain, like, two inches of rain. That's just a Saturday afternoon here in Florida. Right. You know, but there it was devastating. Right. And so this happens in Egypt as well. So a lot of, and, and there's, there's been some recorded incidents of it even in, in modern times, of seeing flash floods and having water pouring into the, the temples there and the enclosures there. Um, so that's, that may be the source of a lot of the, of the erosion or these flash floods that come in. Right. Now, here's an interesting thing. There's a geologist named Colin Reeder who's put out this idea. He was the one that really like kind of demonstrating that the, it, it's a lot of its runoff. But he pointed out that there's a quarry um that was that's behind the sphinx right that's uphill from it basically behind the sphinx between the sphinx and the pyramid that was the quarry that was used uh, for some of the buildings uh for khufu's pyramid right and what he was saying is that with this quarry there um it would have you couldn't have gotten all of this runoff flowing into the sphinx because it would have been flowing into this quarry instead mm-hmm. of into this sphinx, uh, enclosure and if this quarry dates to the time of khufu then that must mean that the Sphinx enclosure has to at least be older than Khufu and Khafre. So he started proposing an earlier date um, for the Sphinx, not 10,000 BC or even 5,000 BC, but an early dynastic date that maybe this was a lion or something and it was recarved as Khafre later on, but maybe it does predate some of the, um, some of the other stuff. Here's an interesting thing. Um, as part of the ARE, uh, I didn't put this in my series, I guess I should have, as part of the ARE um, investigations back in the '80s, one of the things they did was um, they paid for um, Mark Lehner to do a bunch of radiocarbon dating, and they were able to radiocarbon date some of the mortar in the Sphinx from some of the wow. early constructions. And the dates came back; they to they they were you know early dynastic dates, but they predated the Fourth Dynasty by several hundred years.
1: Wow!
2: So there actually is some evidence that while it may not be 10,000 years old it may actually be older than the traditional archaeological date right. for the sphinx right by you know several hundred years it may be an early dynastic uh, monument that was reworked in the time of Caffrey. maybe it was a lion or something like that and its head was recarved to look like Caffrey, right so right so i guess what i'm sort of trying to get at is with a lot of these alternative ideas sometimes the truth may be in the middle right right um you know, we don't, we as archaeologists, we don't have all the answers. Um, you know, we, this is something that you, you get from Grant Hancock all the time, right? There's, yep. you know, new discoveries. Oh, see, archaeologists were wrong. Well, well, no, we had a model. We now have new evidence. So we tweak our model. You know, we're that's right. that's we're how right. it works, right? I mean, you know, it's, um, you know, Gobekli Tepe is a great I, I example of that, where he likes yes. to see. This shows that archaeologists were completely wrong about everything, because here's this, you know, this this shows that all their models were wrong, and, and archaeologists, are they don't want you to accept this new thing. I'm like, well, wait a minute, who discovered Gobekli Tepe? Oh, it was archaeologists. Ar- you know, I mean.
1: Archaeologists.
2: Right. <laughs> it's like, what do you want, right? I mean. Right. Um, yeah. So, yes, it, 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 people can often be ch- be slow to change old models. You know, we need, you know, we, you need real evidence, right. You need, and, and it has to go through peer review and, you know, we argue with each other and there's, you know, I, you know, I, I know that, you know, Graham Hancock sometimes feels personally attacked because we don't you know, just a- accept his views, but I can promise you the, the attacks that he's getting, it's nothing compared to what archaeologists attacking each other right. <laughs> you know, and arguing right. like, or, or any other field in science, right. People are always, I mean, that's part of academia, you know, but, you know, we don't have all the answers, right? And and we do have to change our models. And, you know, sometimes the old guard is slow to do that. Absolutely. But this is a good example here with the Sphinx that, you know, hey, maybe we should be at least a little more open to the idea that it, it may not be as cut and dried as we think it is. And um, right. so, so while Shock himself may have been wrong about this 10,000 idea date, right? He started the ball rolling on these conversations that have got us to You know, now we're hey, okay, maybe we do need to tweak our model. Maybe this is a little bit different, right? Um, I will say this: the um that debate is still ongoing. There was a an article as recently as 2022 um, where they there was a a team that did a bunch of corings all around the Sphinx and out, you know, in in that whole area of the Giza Plateau, and what they found is that um, the Nile used to be much wider than it is now, and that about 5,000 BC or so, the area where the Sphinx is now, and the Sphinx Temple and enclosure, would have actually been in the floodplain of the Nile. Wow. So It essentially would have been inundated. Had it been there that old, it would have been inundated. Right, um, right. So that kind of gives us now a, a, an older date. It really couldn't have been older than that, or it would have been underwater. Um, right. You know, and let's say we're out there swimming in the Nile trying to carve this thing. Yeah, not happening, right? It's not, not happening. happening. Right? Yeah. But it does still allow for the possibility that it's older than what archaeologists say. It it could still be potentially early dynastic and not necessarily fourth dynasty.
1: Right. So who knows? I I think this, and I think we're, we're, let's get into Graham because I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there because you were kind of talking about how maybe the Sphinx is older than what we're claiming. Maybe it was you know, originally a lion or, or whatever it was. That's a big thing that Graham talks about is that, right. you know, with the, with the, the pyramid complex that, well, you know, the foundations of it are much older than anyone is or anyone in mainstream archeology span is claiming. Right.
2: Right. That was, yeah, that was, um, go back to the nineties, right. in some of Graham's earlier works. Um, and also a colleague of his, uh, Robert Baval um, So uh, Robert Baval was one of the guys, It was the guy that came up with the um, Orion correlation hypothesis, right? The idea that the three pyramids um, of of Giza, the three great pyramids are a earthly representation of the three uh, belt stars of the constellation Orion. Um, We do know from from the, the early pyramid texts that the Egyptians believed that the constellation Orion was Osiris
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and, um, so there is this idea that, you know, the God of the afterlife that in earliest religion, their afterlife was in the sky. Right. Um, so he came up with, um, what I think is a really interesting, uh, hypothesis and, and not it's not as crazy as some of the other ideas right at least the basic premise of it um he also was looking at the um the shafts in the great pyramid there's there are uh, shafts that run from the chambers the you know, supposedly burial chambers in the sinks that run um diagonally up uh to the exterior of the pyramid and there have been a number of studies over the years that have shown that those shafts are aligned to certain stars um the southern ones one of them is aligned with uh with orion's belt and another one is aligned with Sirius, whom the Egyptians equated with Isis. Right. Um, so, you know, the consort of Osiris. So there's this, he came up with the idea that the Great Pyramid, that it was really sort of a mechanism for transporting the dead Pharaoh to the stars, to the afterlife, for the for the Pharaoh to become Osiris in the afterlife, right? Which goes along with, the, with Egyptian religious beliefs. And uh, a lot of people didn't have really any problems with this idea, that was actually pretty good, right? Um, a little bit more uh, controversial was his idea that the great that the pyramids themselves were aligned were supposed to be representations of the three belt stars, mm-hmm. right of Orion, uh, because you have two that are in a row and then you have the smaller one that's slightly offset. Um, so that's been a little bit obviously a little bit more controversial, um, but it's an interesting <laughs> idea, right? It kind of looks like it. Right. Where we get into the dating is. Um, trying to align these stars with um, certain time periods, right? And this is where Graham Hancock came in. Um, you know, Graham, uh, Bavall published his theory in the Orion Mystery in 94. Graham did Fingerprints of the Gods in 95 and referenced um, this, the Orion uh, theory in that. And then right after that, the two of them started working together and they collaborated on a book uh, called, uh, it was called Keeper of Genesis in UK and Message of the Sphinx. Uh, here in the States. And <clears throat> what he did was he kind of what what Graham was doing was kind of taking Baval's idea and um, tweaking it a little bit to bring in the idea of precession, the precession of the equinoxes, which is yes. something that he had um, really worked on in fingerprints of the gods. So you know real quick, the uh, precession of the equinox, the earth, when it spins on its axis, it has a slight wobble to it. And, um, you know, it's you know, complicated astronomy, but, uh, you know, and it's hard to, <laughs> hard to describe when we don't have uh, visuals to, to show what it looks like. But essentially what it means is that um, the, the night sky will change over time. And over 26,000 years, um, the sky sort of revolves, at least it, it apparently revolves to those of us on earth looking at the sky, right? It, it, and it goes through um, a number of different constellations, right? So, if you're looking at where the sun rises on the spring equinox um, every year, which constellation it rises in, that's going to change over time, right? Um, and you know, it, it shifts very slowly. Over twenty-six thousand years, it takes it to go all the way around, right? But you know, so, for example, right now uh, we're sort of on the cusp between the age of Pisces and the
0: age of Aquarius. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius, age of
2: Aquarius. That's where, that's where it comes from. Like right, right. now, if you go out and you look at the, um, you where the sun is rising. If you the on, on the spring equinox, right. Um, what you'll see is it'll be rising, um, kind of in between Pisces and Aquarius, right? So, Graham has this idea that you can, um, and and it wasn't his idea, he was borrowing it from other people, the idea that um, the ancients had this knowledge of procession, um, which is typically, it it wasn't thought um, to have been really observed by the ancients until uh, the ancient Greeks. Um, you know, but it's not that crazy that people before that, if you're looking at the night sky and you, I mean, to the Egyptians, especially in Mesopotamia and that night sky, that was their television, right? You didn't have all Mm -hmm. the light pollution. It doesn't take much to just observe. And and you can see these kinds of things, you know, you can see the the sky shifting slowly over time. It's not that crazy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but his idea was that if you look at, um, you start looking at some of these monuments, he was looking in fingerprints he was looking at some monuments that people were dating to 10,500 BC based on when it was aligning with the stars, right? Because right. the sky changes over time, right? Um, they started applying this um, to the um, Giza Plateau. So in looking at the um, the stars of Orion's Belt and the Great Pyramids, what Hancock and Baval, when they started working together and collaborating, what they propose is not, it's not just... representation of the three belt stars it's a representation of the three belt stars aligned with the sky in ten thousand five hundred bc and the way they did this was by saying that the nile um and where it was in where the nile was in relation to the pyramids um the nile to the egyptians was the milky way right the milky way was the celestial nile okay so what they were trying to do was align up the three belt stars of of orion with the milky way and then they were using computer software to see, okay, when would those stars line up with the Milky Way in this, so that it would be in the same position as the three pyramids lining up with the physical Nile on the ground? And that's where they came up with 10,500 BC. One of the major problems with that, and I just alluded to it with that coring thing, is that the course of the Nile has changed a number of times in the last 10,000 years. So it, that, that's a serious flaw with it right there. Um, right through the nineties. Uh, but this, this was where that dating comes from, right? They're, they're trying to tie it into that 10,500 BC date. And while it, back in the day, Hancock rarely mentioned Edgar Cayce, uh, Baval did right. When he was looking at this stuff. And it's very clear that they were trying to make it fit that 10,500 BC date, because that's the date that Casey gave, right? Right. Um, it was always a little oddly specific. Why not 10,000 BC, right? Why not a nice round number? No, 10,500 BC, right? It was what the date he was always pushing because that's Edgar Casey's date, you know? Right. Um, what, as people, astronomers started looking at their work, they started showing that there were actually a lot of problems with this alignment. Um, even if you took it at face value that this is what the Egyptians intended. Um, for one thing, uh, the actual, they had the wrong age. It would have actually been in the age of uh, Virgo. In ten thousand five hundred BC, and Leo would have been more like eight thousand. So right. yeah, and they were kind of artificially trying to make it fit that Edgar Casey date. Um, you know, but so even using their own, you know, their own logic, it, it didn't really work, and they were trying to force it into that, you know, into that date. Um, but that was, you know, Graham got into, you know, the Sphinx, you know, during that period. And that was in the mid nineties. You know, 90, 96 was the year that that book came out. And, um, you yeah, know, I talked about this some in my in my series. Ninety six was kind of a pivotal year. That was yes. when there was a, you know, another expedition funded by a, an Edgar Casey guy you know, that was there looking for the Hall of Records. And things got really contentious in ninety six and ninety seven.
1: Um, I don't know if you want to talk
2: about that at all, but uh, let's go. Let's yeah. go
1: into it, all because right, we'll I into mean, it. Like, this is I mean, this is like I said, I, it, it's so What I think you're doing is so important to give the history of, of, of where all this esoteric thought came from. It it didn't just, it didn't just, you know, come out of the ether. Right. right. And it it wasn't just put on the internet. Right. People had to do all this, right. People had to come up with these thoughts and, you know, Graham had to write books and all these, you know, all these individuals were doing work in a field that, you know, they had people that were arguing against it and there were people that were for it and it had right. to be spread. Right. Yes.
2: So, right. So we talked a little bit of, you know, we talked about Edgar Casey and that was, had a huge influence on this idea mm-hmm. right that there were that there were chambers there and um, you know Hancock and Baval are both writing about this stuff we'd had John Anthony West and Robert Schock with the dating of the Sphinx trying to push the date back all of these things are sort of happening like almost like a perfect storm in the 1990s coming together there were people that were rediscovering some um, other early occult texts that, that talked about this stuff there was a guy named HC uh, Randall Stevens um, that was also about the same time as Casey was channeling information but they were in Great Britain and writing his stuff up uh, the, the head of the Rosicrucians uh, in the 1930s um, uh, a guy named Spencer Lewis was also writing and doing diagrams of uh, chambers under the Sphinx and things like this so all of the stuff started being rediscovered during this period people were going back and looking at hey there's all these different lines of evidence that are, that are suggesting there's got to be something here there's got to be something to this and starting in about in 1996 um there were some new projects some new you know really coming on the heels of that nbc special and graham's books and all of that popularizing this idea uh there's another guy named joseph shore and he was a um he was he was a scientist he worked for forest labs Uh, he's a uh, chemistry background and very wealthy and he was a um you know edgar casey devotee and a big contributor to The Edgar Casey Organization, ARE. He, as a kid, was another one of these guys that was was mentored by Hugh Casey, you know, Edgar Casey's son, and uh, he was a graduate of uh, uh, Florida State University, and you know, big wealthy alumnus, right? Big donor to the university, so he was able to use his influence to get the university to put together a team to go and do an expedition to look for the Hall of Records, to also test shocks. Uh, geological weathering hypothesis, um, you know, to do all of this. Right. And this was, you know, again, I said early 1996, they put together FSU, put together a team of three geologists and one archaeologist. It turns out that the archaeologist is actually um, when I went back to school, he was actually one of my one of my professors.
1: Um, That's incredible. Yeah. And that was so cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I
2: literally uh, was having <laughs> drinks with them at, at the conference uh, last, last week. Like, hey, man, remind me again. Tell me this story because, you know, this is coming up and I'm doing all this research. Um, so from their perspective, they did not realize, uh, the, you know, the, the geologists and the archaeologists from FSU, they didn't realize the backstory here. They thought right. they were going over to do a, a legitimate, like, you know, um, seismographic or, or uh, geophysical survey around the sinks, looking for natural cavities. Right. right. With the idea that, you know, we're, we're going to look for natural cavities to see if it might be a danger to the sinks, maybe collapsing or whatever. Um, they thought it was totally legit. They got to Egypt and found out, oh, God, it's a bunch of Edgar Casey people,
0: you know, um,
2: <laughs> doing this. Like, oh, my God. So they're all embarrassed. They're like, all right, whatever. Free trip to Egypt, I guess, you know, you know, but they went along with it. They did their thing, you know, but he just it's funny. Even to this day, he just thinks the whole thing was ridiculous like you got like you got to be kidding me um and then you know they found out they were being they were going to be filmed for a documentary and they're like no way no way in hell you know we didn't agree to that we didn't sign up for it we're absolutely not gonna contribute to that um the uh then they found out they were actually being secretly filmed by the film crew um they got pissed at that you know (laughs) and you know they went they did their work and they they left after you know week or two you know we're really they really weren't there that long it was really just a preliminary thing but yeah you know, that was essentially uh sure this this wealthy um you know edgar casey guy he used fsu in order to get a permit you know to do that because they had to have they had to be working with a legitimate academic institution in order to
1: get, right to get a university always looks good right Nope. And that's what they were doing, you know, yep. and,
2: and, but really they got the same guy, Thomas Debecky, who had done the earlier work with, you know, in the early nineties with shock where he found the cavity that was now a chamber. They brought him back and he found more chambers again, chamber You can't see because this is uh, there's no visual here, but I'm doing finger quotes every time I say the word chamber. Right. Um, <laughs> so he, he, found more cavities, um, including another one behind the Sphinx behind the, the rump of the Sphinx. Yes. Um, which, you know, maybe it's natural, maybe it's not. We don't really, you know, there's no way to really know, right? So this was, but during this period, things this is where things started getting contentious. Um, so Shore had used a lot of the people from um, the earlier Mystery of the Sphinx NBC special. Um, the, Boris Said, the guy that produced that, um, Shore brought him in to do this new documentary. Um, they brought in Thomas Dobecki, who had worked with John An- Anthony West and Robert Shot So... West started getting pissed that he wasn't asked to be a part of this. Um, but there's a good reason for that. Um, West and Shock had already been fighting with Zahi Hawass and Mark Lehner. And um, you know, West is a really interesting individual. I, you know, I corresponded with him some. I, I, I found him to be an incredibly, you know, very gracious individual with his time and, and ideas. But he can also be very acerbic and he speaks his mind and doesn't hold right. back. Yeah, And it can, he's not the most diplomatic person sometime. And he- yeah,
1: Kind of like Graham Hancock, right? Kind of like,
2: yeah. Graham used to be more diplomatic, Yeah, he got a little, you know, but- but He's West gotten real started,
1: ornery in the last couple of decades. a little ornery. <laughs> One might even say bitter, but that's a different yes. story, right? Yes, um,
2: You know, and so West was already persona non grata on the Giza Plateau. Had he been involved in this project, they would have never gotten a permit. Um, and so Shore was trying to do this by the book getting a permit, doing everything properly. You know, um, yes, he was looking for the hall of records, but they, they had a, a, you know, a facade excuse that they're, they're just to document natural cavities, right? He was trying to, you know, do it by the book and, you know, Wes kind of got mad. He wasn't included. Um, Hancock and Baval, who had become good friends with Wes in the last few years, you know, leading up to this, they, kind of got mad they had been invited to be a part of it as well like as consultants and they publicly said no we're not gonna have anything to do with it because they're excluding john anthony west and you know so you started getting a lot of infighting from the alternative camp fighting each right. other and um it it got really really bad at, at a certain point point. and much of the back and forth was um taking place not just at conferences and on the internet but on coast to coast with art bell right. To tie it back to your show. Like a lot of it was playing out on there. Like, Hancock would go on art bell and, you know, talk about how, Oh, the Yeager Casey folks, they're going to secretly open the hall of records and they're not going to reveal it to the public. Well, that's because they were asked when they were first asked to be a part of it. Um, they were, they uh, were asked to sign non-disclosure agreements. Right. You well, know, which is, I mean, it's, some of this is just kind of standard, you know? Yeah. Um, but it got really heated, um, you know, even to the point and, and, and I will say this: like I was a fan of Hancock's at this point. Still, this is you know still mid '90s. I was I was following all of this online. You know, the fledgling internet man. There was there was all of this was taking place there. This is where I first kind of started souring on Hancock a little bit. You know, there was um, in particular one episode of Art Bell uh, on Coast to Coast where uh, he was on there with Richard Hoagland. Now, he's a name we haven't mentioned yet, but Richard Hoagland was the, the, the guy that was the champion of the Face on Mars back in the eighties and nineties. Right. And, uh, he got involved in the Sphinx stuff because he was trying to say that the face on Mars may have been a Mars Sphinx, right. And that oh, there was, it had similarities to the right. And so he was pushing the idea that there was a, a cataclysm on Mars, 10,500 years ago, and that Martians escaped and came to earth and built the Sphinx. Yes. And that Mars was really Atlantis, right? Yes.
0: <laughs> Man, R- Richard back. Richard Hoechlin has actually been back on coast in the previous weeks saying that there's uh lunar bases all over the moon, like ancient domes covering the entire moon, and this only South Korea is out. showing us their new lunar pictures. He's still going <laughs> at it, dude. <laughs> That's amazing,
2: right? I mean, and so here's the thing, Hancock and Baval, though, they had become friends with Hoagland during this period as well. And they were just starting to buy into this Mars idea as well. And um, you know, so and a couple of years after this, in the late '90s, the next book that Bavall and Hancock would do together is the Mars Mystery, where mm-hmm. they basically they took Hoagland's, you know, Mars is actually Atlantis, and they ran with it. Hancock right. ran with this, and there's a whole book, right? Literally just a couple of months after this book came out, where Hancock is now pushing this idea that the face on Mars is maybe that's the Sphinx and all that. Then um, there was a new, um, we, we had a new Mars mission where the a global surveyor went over it and filmed the face on mars again and it was very clearly a natural formation
1: it's a rock, right? Formation, right? It just a rock yeah. formation right yeah yeah it was you know, it was a great theory when it was all blurry right
2: like a blurry right. bigfoot on mars kind of thing right once you get the the real photograph so literally their book had a shelf life of like three months this <laughs> mars mystery book that they came out with and you know today you will you hear like Hancock does not mention that Mars book at no. all. Like he, I, yeah, he will not, can't. he's like yeah. George Lucas, you know, trying to deny the existence of the star Wars holiday special. Right. It you know, does not want to this Mars book to, to um, exist. But at this point, right in the nineties, know, it's still an idea. I mean, they were throwing it out there and you had an art bell show where Hoagland had, um, was, was on art bell. And what he had done is he went and he was trying to basically be the peacemaker, between Hancock and Baval and West on one hand, and Joseph Shore and the, and the people that were working at the Sphinx on the other, he's like, look, we're all on the same side here. We're all trying to find this Hall of Records, you know. Can't we just all get along, right? So Hoagland went and he had a sit down with Joseph Shore, you know, like, hey, can we get Hancock and Baval back involved? What can we do? And Shore was basically like, yes, that's fine, no problem. Like, you know, just, you know, they can be they can be there when we open the Hall of Sphinx, right? They're, they're always working with the assumption that, A, there is a Hall of Sphinx, right or a Hall, of, Hall of Records, rather, in the Sphinx, and that they're going to be able to open it, and we are going to have a documentary and do a live opening and reveal the records of Atlantis there on a live network special. Yeah, uh, the
1: tomb of Jimmy Hoffa, right? It's exactly what it is, right? And yep.
2: it's amazing looking back now with hindsight that there were so many people that really thought this seemed like a real thing. Right. Like, this was going to really happen, that we're going to have a, a Geraldo-style opening of the Edgar Casey Hall of Records under the Sphinx.
1: Right, yeah. And then just, like, this all this esoteric <laughs> information from 10,000 years ago that, you know, has right. been hidden underneath the Sphinx this whole time.
2: Right, live on TV. Yeah, know? right, right. Like they were, This was really the idea at the time. And what you start to realize, you know, on, on the show, like, Hoagland basically, you know, he's like, hey, I talked to Joseph Shore yes you guys can be there for the opening and hancock's like well no we need the world press there and unesco right. and it has to be this and like it's like god dude you're not you're not you got to be able to take yes for an answer like yes they're willing to have you there and you start to realize that really at the end of the day it's all egos right on everyone's part here it was just big conflicting egos um they were pissed that they weren't involved from the beginning and you know it it was it was really kind of unseemly and right. um And that was where I first started kind of get souring on Graham Hancock, you know, because it was very clear that he was more interested in fighting with people that he should have been natural allies with. Right. You know, and it was just egos getting in the way.
1: Um, Yeah. And and, I I don't think anyone would ever claim that uh, Graham Hancock was egoless. Right. No, he's got a huge ego.
2: So does Hawass. So does Shore. Right. So did everybody involved in this, right? Right. It was all egos on everybody's part. Everyone, or Saeed, the producer, right? He ended up going off and doing his own thing, you know? Well, I mean, mean, you
1: you mentioned he was a Formula One driver, right? Was,
2: and he was on the Olympic bobsled team too, right? He was kind of (laughs) like the adventurer type guy. Right, right. right? Who turned into a TV producer producing, you know, the, you know, alternative, um, you know, history shows and stuff. You know, he was. While he was there, supposedly filming this the shore expedition and the FSU expedition, he was secretly cutting a deal with Zahi Hawass behind the scenes to do another like live special. And there was uh, footage of Zahi Hawass going into one of the tunnels in the Sphinx, the Rump Tunnel, we call it, right? Because that's funny. You know, where Hawass is going down there, and he's like pretending to be Indiana Jones going into this tunnel in the Sphinx, and you know, and they they just were doing some test footage, and that got leaked on the internet, which just made Hancock and Bival go ballistic oh, I See, they're people. They're in cahoots with Hawas and they're, they're planning all this and they're going to hide whatever's in the hall of records from the public. Um, but you know, it was a crazy time, right? This was, we're going into the late nineties. There was very much, honestly, a sense of millennialism, right? In right. The you know, right. I mean, everybody was a little nuts during that period I think yeah I agree.
1: and we've um, talked about that several times where you know the y2k and yeah you all have, of that was you know up. the Hale bop comet and I mean that's Waco, right Texas and that's right all I of mean, this
2: was happening with within right. that context right yes. and it needs to be understood within that context of where everyone's mindset was that millennialist kind of even if you weren't thinking about it or talking about it explicitly it was always kind of there in the background you know right. and going back to Edgar Casey, part of his predictions that he he put out there was that the hall of records would be found by 1998, you know, so you also have this, this date that right. everybody was trying to work towards. Hey, we got to find the hall of records when Edgar Cayce said we should find it. Right? right. And along with that, there were, you know, he had predictions that there would be earth changes and there'd be a new cataclysm and a pole shift, right. Which was something Hancock had, you know, was, was a major theme of his books. Right. So all of this stuff tied together, right? And people were in this sort of mindset and it it drove everybody a little crazy. There was this rabid competition to see who's going to be the first to find this hall of records. You know, never even like the, the question of was, is there actually a hall of records? Right. Never really came up. It's who's going to get there and open it first, you know, and how do we do it? Do we do it on live TV or should it be a more spiritual process? Where blah, 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 you know, I mean, all of that was, part of the conversation that was going on during that period and
1: uh well it was a little nuts and so jeffrey on that you know Mm -hmm. what what are kind of the thoughts on the hall of records a in mainstream archaeology mainstream history is there this idea that maybe there's kind of a library of alexandria that we don't know about or did the Egypt Egyptians kind of write about something like this? Because it does seem to be such a huge part of this lore, right? It's that there is a Hall of Records, well, that and- is full of esoteric knowledge that is being hidden from us, right? It's kind of like the Vatican libraries
0: you know, forbidden section or something right. like that. Yeah. And to, to tack to that, is there any evidence for the hall of records outside of one guy who said he was psychically told by right. a ghost thing in like 1900? <laughs> yes. There's
2: two guys who said that they got it psychically in oh. the early 1900s. Okay. So it's definitely true. <laughs> <laughs> it was also Randall Stevens, a British guy. Yeah. Uh, okay. So yes, there's two guys they came up with this, but in both cases, yes, channeled information, right? So right. what do you do with that? Um, there, there are, there's certainly the idea um, that Egypt was a repository of lost knowledge. This goes back to ancient times. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, we're even the Greeks and the Romans looked back to ancient Egypt as this, you know, source of knowledge they recognize even then just how ancient it was. Um, and so there is that sort of theme, right? And you know, I, I love to use the example just to like get across the idea of just how ancient the Egyptian civilization was and how more or less uh, you had this more or less continuity of iconography and beliefs and all of that. by using the example of Cleopatra, right who we're all familiar with Cleopatra, you know if, if you're you know old enough, you remember Elizabeth Taylor. If you're young enough, you maybe you saw the awesome HVO Rome series, right? Oh, so good. So, right. So Cleopatra, right, Queen of Queen of Egypt, she is closer to us in time than she herself was to the pyramids, the building right. of the pyramids. Right. Right. The pyramids were further away in time for her than she is to us.
1: Right. That's and that just true. seems bonkers.
2: Yeah, it seems bonkers, right? So so even, you know, to the Greeks and Romans, right, who have had such a huge influence on Western knowledge and Western philosophy and these ideas, there's always been this sense that Egypt is so damn old, right? And they've got, you know, this, all of this knowledge and the Greeks traced their history back, you know, to the Egyptians. So even if there's not a specific hall of records, there, there's that sort of overarching theme that, that Egypt is the source of ancient wisdom, right? Right. And that's always been there. Yeah. Um, you know, at least, at least from from classical times. Um, and, you know, but as far as an actual physical record or physical Hall of Records, yeah, probably not, certainly probably not at the Sphinx. Um, there are some interesting things there. Um, you know, ultimately, the way the whole 90s um, Hall of Records search played out was they ended up doing a live special and went into the one legitimate subterranean chamber that we did know was there um, that's near the Sphinx, um, you know, so there are, there are things like that, right? There are some subterranean chambers like that, but an actual hall of records, um, you know, if you want to read or learn about that, whatever hidden ancient knowledge the Egyptians have, it's there, right? It's there in their hieroglyphs. It's there in their texts, right? read it right it's all you know it's one of the things that kind of drives me crazy with the folks that are looking for you know all the ancient technology and machining and you know geopolymers and how are how are they doing this i'm like you know what's what do you what is it you're getting at i mean if you're interested in learning the ancient wisdom of the egyptians read what they wrote right right yeah they were very upfront about it all weren't they they're all it's all right there right? right they're sitting there looking at hieroglyphs that look like helicopters and shit i'm like you understand there's a whole wall of hieroglyphs here right. why don't you read them and see what they are telling you this is right right <laughs> you know rather than you just looking at an image out of context right um it's there right there so the answer is you know is there a hall of records with ancient knowledge yeah in a sense you know it's in their text it's in their mythology it's in right. their religion so you know my you know my um I guess, advice to people that are looking for something from this, you know, um, start looking at, at the actual context, right? Look right. at what the Egyptians had to say, um, you know, for all the criticisms of Hancock and um, John Anthony West and these guys, I'll tell you what they do do. They do go back and read these Egyptian texts. They read it, right. They read them, you know, yeah. they may have different interpretations, but they're actually going back and at least they're reading yeah. the texts, right? That is not something that you'll see some of the you know modern day YouTubers, doing right they're right. not they're not actually reading what the egyptians wrote or trying to understand you know um you know what they were doing in context right and understanding their religion and understanding their beliefs you know so yeah for all the criticisms that Baval and hancock and west and these guys get at least they were trying to situate these alternative ideas within the context of egyptian thought egyptian yes. religion, egyptian mythology
1: Well, Um, and I I think that was what I connected to, to Hancock and to, and I mean, to the chariots of the gods, right? right. Is that, yeah, you may have some interpretations that were wrong and stuff like that, but I wanted the source material, right? Right. I wanted to see what were these people saying at the time, right? right? What was... What was their mindset when they were when they were talking about this stuff? And not a lot of people give you that these days. They don't. You know, um, you know. There's a big thing with
2: the um, these stone vases, right? And you'll you'll see guys, you know, that like, you know, oh, well, yeah, okay, they could have done it by hand, but it would have taken them months and months to do it. You know, um, not understanding that. Okay, these vases, if you understand Egyptian religion. These vases are going into the tomb, right? These aren't just everyday wear, right? right? Like, you know, your paper plates. These are supposed to be representations of vessels that are going to provide sustenance for the pharaoh in the afterlife, not just some Joe Schmo, but for the pharaoh. So, yeah, it took months for them to make this. The act of doing that itself was part of the magic. Yes, Right to create yes. these things to put all of that effort and that labor into it. That's what that's what they were trying to do, so that it would exist forever in the afterlife. These vessels that would you know feed the pharaoh and his retinue that were yes. in the early dynastic period were sacrificed. They had the dubious honor of being sacrificed to help keep serving the pharaoh in the afterlife. You know, that's what they were for. If you understand, you know, I, I know like Chris Dunn's son on there, one one of them was like, Oh, yeah, they had thousands of these and they just stacked them up like Tupperware. You know, so it, it had to be easy to do. Otherwise, they wouldn't have treated them like this. But no, that's you're missing the whole point. Yes. It's all the effort and the work that was put into these things, you know, working this stone by hand. Yeah, it took months
1: to do. Absolutely. It did. That was the point. Right. You know. Well, what a sign of power of the Pharaoh that what he could he could control somebody for that long to make that's a base. Right. Yes. to make a vase i mean right. at the time that would have been i mean you were still having to to dig in a hole to make your food right? right i mean yes, uh, it's right it's hard for us to even yeah. fathom
2: yes there's a reason why they it wasn't just they weren't just pottery vessels you know like some poor right. guy might have had like two two ceramic pots in their tomb you know he was a pharaoh he he could have stone vessels it yes. would last forever part of the egyptian religion right is the especially for the afterlife is It's it almost it's almost similar to the sort of new age concept of manifestation, right? Where if you you think something, it can make it real, right? They had the same idea, you know, in the afterlife. You know, their their idea of immortality. If if you just say somebody's name, that's passed on, that helps them still to continue to exist in the afterlife, right? If you write their name down, even better. If you carve their name in stone, that's even better. Or if you do a likeness of them or a statue even better, right? It's the same thing, right? With these, with these bases, right? right? Well, Catholicism
1: um, has the same thing with purgatory, right? Like if you prayed for somebody in purgatory, exactly. you Very got them, idea. right? You got them quicker through purgatory so that they can get to paradise.
2: Right. So I guess it's what I'm saying. People nowadays, there, there's this lack of understanding the context, right? Right. Um, and I, and I, I, feel like if people are looking for a hall of records, if they're looking for lost wisdom from ancient civilizations, this is what I'm telling you. The real stuff there is pretty fucking cool. Yes. You don't have to make shit up.
1: Right. 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 Oh, dude. You know? I, yes. <laughs> yes. That is so true. OK, all right, we're running along. We're running along. But I got one more question, because sure. thinking about this kind of hall of records, thinking about Graham Hancock, thinking about, you know, the knowledge that has been lost through time. One of the things I really connected with in in some of Graham's writings was his idea of the Sabians, who are these holders of esoteric knowledge that have been handed down for 10,000, 12,000 years now. What is there a lot of thought about the Sabians? Did Graham just kind of make that up wholeheartedly
2: not wholeheartedly. Okay, he's pulling from some traditions, right? In in um in Hindu mythology, you have the the rishis, right? And, and right. you have there are, I mean, to some degree, it's kind of an archetype, right? The idea that there's um, you know, sages or whatever in in different traditions that have special right. knowledge. What Nicholas Cage's in,
1: family in uh in national right. uh, oh. <laughs> treasure
0: national treasure right national treasure <laughs> right. National treasure. right. <laughs> yeah. Um,
2: so there is. I mean, there are these ideas. What he is doing is kind of pulling things from different traditions and kind of conflating them together to make it seem more uniform than it maybe it really is. And then, you know, of course, there's always this idea, too, that that knowledge has been, you know, kept through time through like esoteric societies you know, has been a thing that's been around for a long time as well, right? Like Freemasons and some of the other, you know, some of those hermetic organizations, they all have that sort of theme, like, hey, we have this special ancient knowledge that goes back to Atlantis, and it's come through Egypt, and it's come through, you know, Solomon's Temple and all of that, right? Um, And then the Knights Templar has found it again, you know, and brought it back. There is, you know, there are these traditions that have been around, you know, for a long time. Um, Some of them are, Probably organizations that want to seem more ancient than they really are,
0: right. um,
2: and you know, so how much credence do you put in, into this stuff? Yeah, you know, who knows? It's hard. To, you know, it's hard to say. But that's certainly been a theme for a long time, especially in you know what we would call esoteric, you know, traditions, occult traditions, and you know that's obviously bled into modern New Age thought. Um, and and Hancock, you know, you know makes you know makes use of those ideas, right? The problem, I think, you know, where he talks about sort of his his sages that were um, refugees from um, this lost civilization, he actually uses the A word Atlantis now. He used to avoid it. Right. Like, Egg. Um He's right. also changed his date from ten thousand, the oddly specific ten thousand five hundred BC. Now that he's abandoned the whole Edgar Casey thing, to the even more oddly specific eleven thousand six hundred BC.
1: That's right. That's right. Um, yeah
2: you'll see him use that all the time and oh an yeah. well that's because that's Plato's day right and right he's, now he's now he's doing Atlantis rather than Edgar Casey, but this idea that you have these you know Atlantean or whatever um you know people that were going around um teaching you know the the primitive people right that survived again there was finger quotes there for those of you because you can't see me but um you know it's there's some problems with this right the idea that um You know, we don't have, obviously, we don't have uh, evidence, really good evidence for um, any kind of uh, Ice Age, you know, civilizations. You know, archaeologists, we don't even use the term civilization much anymore, right? Because that's a loaded term, you know? What does that mean, right? Civilization, right? right? That's part of the problem with Hancock, too. he, He does a lot of straw manning when he talks about archaeologists. Right. And when he describes archaeological thought, he's describing archaeological thought fifty years ago or a hundred years ago. You know, we're and, and we don't really think in these kind of terms anymore. But part of this idea that the civilizing god motif, right, it, it is out there. this you mm-hmm. know, um, you know yep. Osiris, I, a, a lot identity, of societies
1: have it. Yeah,
2: Quetzalcoatl, right? Or, you yeah. know, um, part of the problem is especially with the myths of the Americas, like Quetzalcoatl. These are myths that were written down by mostly by Spanish priests. Right, right. And they put a lot of uh Catholic ideas and western ideas onto them. And so we don't really often have very good ideas of what their actual myths really were. So, you know, some of that's kind of flawed, but there are these ideas out there the the, the sort of the civilizing god, right? The T- Prometheus, right? As yes. in Greek mythology, right? This idea. Um it's an archetype, right? Like many other yeah. archetypes, right? And and um you know, How much of that does that mean that there were literal civilizing gods running around or is that a just a common theme that we as humans like to have that's that's something that we like to include in our stories or better right. yet, the stories that involve these themes and these archetypes are the ones that get preserved, because for whatever reason they resonate with us, you know. Well, uh, and it's
1: almost putting a, you know, it, it's getting a manifestation of divine inspiration right i didn't come up with this idea i'm merely a vessel of the idea of creating agriculture or creating astronomy or creating you know whatever it is
2: right and and the problem with that is we don't have you know let's say the creation of astronomy for example so they're they're going and they're teaching people at you know maybe gobekli tepe you know agriculture for example but you know, we have, I mean, we have DNA now on, we, we can trace, you know, how, how crops were domesticated and these kinds right. of things. And there's no evidence of that prior to that. So where was all of the agriculture during the ice age that these, that these sages knew about that they're now going and teaching people after this cataclysm, right? It's not there. Right. And, and that's kind of a flaw with the whole, that whole premise, um, you know, and uh, you know, it, it's, Again, Gobekli Tepe and places like this, they are changing how we think about um, how cultures develop and change and evolve over time. Again, you don't need to add fantasy to it. Um, right. it it's cool as it is. My right. God, Gobekli Tepe, if you look at like some of the real things that the archaeologists are hypothesizing there, that there may have been places where they were like charnel houses right. in some of those chambers and like they were, you know, that's fucking metal right? Yeah. The real totally shit crazy. is cool yeah. enough as it is, you yeah. know, you totally don't crazy. necessarily need to, to, you know, invent fantasies to make these things more interesting. Yeah. So I guess I would encourage people, you know, it, it's cool. I get it. I love these fantasies too. I've loved them my whole life. There's a reason why I spend so much time on it. Um, you know, this, this idea, these fantastic interpretations of the past, right? That it speaks to us, right? It really does. Um, but, you know, the, the real story of a lot of these ancient peoples is just as cool right um you know take the time and and check it out um would be my advice to people you know that you know that's that's the real ancient wisdom out there it's there you know learn learn from these cultures learn from their texts. learn from what they were saying learn from yeah the archaeology you know it may not you know we may not always be right we're never 100 percent right you know but we're trying to use a methodology that's a little bit more objective and yeah we're going to make mistakes and yeah we're going to have to tweak our model You know, that's just how science works.
1: Jeffrey, on that note, we're going to end it there. Is there anything you want to plug real quick? Um, I don't really have anything to plug yet. I wish I did. I am.
2: I've been... um... You know, a lot of people have been encouraging me to start doing a podcast, and I, I'm, you know, I've been toying with that idea for a couple of years now. So, you know, maybe I will do that. Um, I, you,
1: you should know, totally do it, and we, would love, it we yeah, would love so, to have you on again. We would love to have you on again.
0: Yeah, I'd love to have you guys on if I do that too. You know, plug <laughs> the, because, the first thing uh, I was going to say was, you need to start a podcast because I've been riveted. <laughs> just I have no idea about any of this. I've just been sitting here like this is crazy. So uh, <laughs> okay. definitely support that idea, and, and we'll so, definitely help you out any way we can.
1: <laughs> sure, sounds great, man. Well that's uh coast to coast pm's first interview ever so so much like a huge thank you to jeffrey we hope you everyone loved it what an awesome time this was you're very
2: welcome and thank you guys for having me on i had a blast